Hey guys, welcome to another episode of The Odd Coyote. I'm super excited about this week's episode. We have Dr. Rico Wright, as well as Koresh Ali Lansana, and a really good um, discussion and conversation in between both of those pieces with both of those fellas. Uh, before we get into it, I wanted to let you guys know that today is probably the second to last episode for this season of The Odd Coyote. Uh, school's going to kick off. Um, as some of you know, I'm a teacher. So that's going to, the summer is coming to a close, unfortunately. And then also, I wanted to let you guys know that Black Wall Street Theater is putting on uh, six short plays. And the presentation is called The Hexagon. That's going to be at Nightingale Theater, October 4th through the 6th. And that is going to be here in a couple of short months. So do what you need to do to change your schedule around and get ready for that event. Again, that's October 4th through the 6th um, at 7 p.m. There is a VIP happy hour two hours before the presentations of the plays at 5. So uh, definitely be looking on uh, the Twitter page and Facebook for more information about that. But if you need more information, you can also email RicoWright at gmail.com. That's R-I-C-C-O-W-R-I-G-H-T at gmail.com. We can talk to you about tickets and everything. That's going to be held at the Nightingale Theater, which is in Tulsa, uh, 1416 East 4th Street, Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm very excited about this. Um, out of the six short plays that they're showing, three of them are shorts that I've written, so I'm super excited to work with those guys and that that group of people. And they, this is going to be the first presentation of theater from Black Wall Street Theater, and many more to come. Uh, they're talking about producing full-length shows. There's probably going to be more uh, short compilations as well. So this is kind of the inauguration performance for this theater company. And I got to tell you, I've met with a, a handful of them a few weeks ago, and just a really um, interesting, creative group of people. And I, I tell you what's also... Um, great about this theater company is that that's hard to find with the arts in general sometimes is there's no weird ego things going on. It is a group of people sincerely and earnestly trying to give platforms and possibilities and opportunities for artists to come together and use original work, uh, local directors and actors and even focusing on getting those people paid for what they do, which is which is important because if you think about it, especially with theater, you know, people are giving hours and hours of their time to make art for people, and they're sacrificing you know, time and schedules and gas money, uh, missing out on time with friends and loved ones and things like that. And it it's hard to uh, find a place that prioritizes that and tries to give them some compensation. So hats off to. Black Wall Street Theater um, Company and trying to not only have uh, another space that's going to launch uh, creative activity and discussions and the and the arts, but also trying to uh, support those artists and and hold them up and and get them paid. So very very excited to work with those people and. Um, that group and see what happens there. So show up in October. We'll be looking forward to seeing you there. But with that and the school year kicking off, this will be the second to last episode for this season of the odd coyote. I appreciate you guys supporting the podcast and listening this summer. And I have more to do in the future. 
Um, but with uh, the school year kicking off, we'll be winding things down here for one season and t- until probably next summer. So what is there else to talk about? Well, with the school year and talking about teaching and that sort of thing, as also some of you know, along with teaching public school, I also teach at TCC, which you know is a college. So I have a profile on Rate My Professor. I check it constantly. I feel like an Uber driver checking their rating. Uh, as soon as a class or a course ends for the semester, I hop on and see if anybody has given me any kind of feedback. Uh, you know, it, yeah, I'll admit it's a little dopamine rush. It's a little ego boost when you get on there and you see a good rating and you feel good about what you do and you feel like what you do matters and has sat with these people, these students long enough that they feel compelled of their own volition to, to sit down and type out a review. It feels good. Now, as some of you know, if, if you've used Rate My Professor before, you can pull up professors all over the country at different colleges, and it, you give them a review, and it's kind of like a star ranking system. One of the things on the Matrix uh, was this thing called the Chili Pepper. And if you thought a professor was attractive, you could click that Chili Pepper. Now, once you get the Chili Pepper, it's just on the top of your profile, and it's anonymous as far as you, you don't know who gave you, you never know who gave you the rating or the review. It's all anonymous anyway. You just see the words and it's a random user account. You don't see the name. So you don't know who gives you what. And you don't know where the chili pepper came from. Uh, but once you get it, it's on there. So a couple of weeks ago, um, as the semester was winding down, I, I checked my rate my professor to see if any of my summer students had given me a review yet. And I noticed that the chili pepper, I had earned a chili pepper at some point um, and was proud of that. It was a feather in my cap, giving me a little boost in the morning when I'm getting out of bed. I have a chili pepper on my rate my professor. Anyway, I check on it and it is gone. And the first thing that crosses my mind is that somehow my appearance has gone so steeply downhill that somebody has somehow had taken away my chili pepper. Um, I don't think that that was possible or anything. Anyway, a logical person might think, oh, maybe they did away with the chili pepper or something like that. But the way that my brain works is I immediately, uh, thought that somebody had taken away the chili pepper. And then my next course of action, instead of, you know, tabbing over while I was on my computer or trying to Google or look up, you know, what happened or is, has something changed with the, the site or the policy? Or why would I even spend this much time thinking about something so superficial? But I did, okay? I'll be real with you guys. I was super concerned about where my chili pepper went. Uh, a logical, pragmatic person, like I said, might have researched the problem and, and had, you know, looked up and seen that what actually happened is in July of this year, right, my professor took away the chili pepper because they didn't think it really um, should impact the score of a professor and had nothing to do with the educational process, which is true, and many other good and diligent reasons as to why they should remove that from their scoring matrix. Uh, but I am not that person. So my first instinct, instead of trying to research it or look it up, was to look up another professor that I thought would definitely have a chili pepper to see if they still had theirs. So that's what my brain did. So what I immediately did was search up uh, Tim Bradford. So Tim, if you're listening, apparently in my high anxiety brain, 
in thinking of the first person who teaches college and is also attractive. Tim Bradford, you come to mind. That's what my brain went to first. Well, if Tim Bradford has a chili pepper, if anybody has a chili pepper, it's going to be Tim Bradford. So that's where my brain went. So I looked up Tim Bradford. He also did not have a chili pepper. And only then did my brain say, oh, well, it just must not be a thing that they do anymore. So that's where I'm at in life. And then I did tab over and look it up. And sure enough, they they taken off. Turns out a lot of professors deal with uh, reviews that have almost nothing to do with the educational process. And uh, they were being objectified and their clothes were discussed and things like that. And rate my professor didn't think that that was a, a fruitful thing to have on their site. So they removed that all in all, you know, sounds like a good call, but for a minute caused a little bit of egotistical narcissistic panic in my life. And then apparently subconsciously, I think Tim Bradford is, you know, he's a good looking guy. He's a handsome man and a smart man. So Anyway, Tim, if you're listening, uh, that's where my brain went to first. So we don't have our chili peppers, bud. They took them away, but it's for, uh, you know, progress in society and the culture overall. Anyway, enough about that. Uh, other things to talk about this week. Super excited about the two pieces. Uh, Rico is sharing a prose piece, um, kind of memoir type piece about an experience he had in New York running across, uh, instead of Tiger Woods, it's Tiger Hood. So the Tiger Woods of the hood and an experience in New York, um, very interesting uh, real life guy in New York City who has kind of a uh, almost a uh, circus sideshows circus type uh, hustle going on with people playing golf in the middle of uh, streets and alleyways in New York City. And Rico had ran across him. Funny story about that. You'll hear. And then you'll also hear a poem uh, um, composed of the subjects of the Rolling Stones and Old Friends by Q. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have Rico's piece and then the conversation that all three of us had about humor. And it is a longer conversation. It's almost uh, 18 minutes long, but it's a really, really good conversation. And I think you'll really enjoy what uh, we get to talking about as far as humor and how society and culture uses humor and the strengths of humor and things like that. Um, I think even I mentioned what got me started on humor in the first place and my fascination with comedy. So I believe that gets talked about as well. And then we'll go to Q's piece after that. His piece will finish things out. So super excited about both of these guys. They're both very dear, close friends of mine. Dr. Rico Wright, he's a mover shaker of the 918 area. He is the poetry editor at Calliope Crashes. He's been the managing editor at uh, the Black Wall Street Times. He's taught at Langston University. He's published an immense amount of poetry. He's on the mic. He's meeting all the people. He's throwing soirees. He's just, a, like I said, a mover and shaker of our times, building bridges and building communities and opportunities uh, with the Black Wall Street Theater Company. Super excited to have him on here. Kareish Ali Lansana, you know, I could read all of his books, all the chat books, um, the list and lists of accolades that he, that that guy has accomplished. He's an amazing poet, an amazing educator and teacher and poetry mentor as well. I could read you tons and tons of, of things, but I think what sums it up is he has a profile on the Poetry Foundation. To me, if you're a poet, that is making it. You can go to the Poetry Foundation, the, the foundation that you hear poems from on NPR 
and this guy has a profile. So Kareish Ali Lansana is on as well. Super excited about that as well. Both really good friends of mine. So sit back, enjoy the story, the the conversation that we have, and then the poem. If you haven't already checked out the other Odd Coyote episodes, please uh, download and listen to those things as well. Share the podcast and then stay tuned for the last episode next week for this season of the Odd Coyote. And we will get to it here. After leaving the Sonia Sanchez talk at NYU, Jason and Terry go to have drinks at Fat Black Pussycat on West 3rd Street. Once inside, they order a pitcher of beer and grab a table. Every flat screen is showing March Madness 2017. It just so happens that the nearby screen is showing the only sweet 16 game that matters to them, so they tune in. After Kentucky defeats UCLA, they order two shots of vodka for a sweet taste of victory before stepping outside for some fresh air. Looking up West 3rd, Jason sees a familiar face in a sea of people. He takes a drag of his cigarette and notices another guy in the street holding a wedge iron with what happens to be a dozen small milk cartons in front of him on the ground. Suddenly, it dawns on him who the familiar face is. Holy shit, it's Tiger Hood. No, not Tiger Woods, Tiger Hood. He plays golf like Tiger Woods, but only in the hood. Hence the name. I saw a documentary about him a while back. It was dope. Yo, let's go up there. It was summer 2014. Jason was at the Dead Center Film Festival in Oklahoma City perusing the film guide when he stumbled across a full page ad for the documentary short film Tiger Hood. It was a captivating title, but the description at the top of the page is what really piqued his interest. It stated something to the effect that the film's subject was known for playing golf in the streets of New York City using a wedge iron small milk carton stuffed with newspaper for golf balls, and a small box for a hole. The hustle was so brilliant that Jason almost couldn't believe what he was reading. But then again, he could, given the high correlation between hustling and the Big Apple. Then came a problem. There were only two screenings of the collection of documentary shorts featuring Tiger Hood. The time for one of them didn't work for Jason, and the other was sold out with the option of arriving early and going on standby. He was so intrigued by the description that he decided to wait in the queue for almost two hours, but he managed to get a $20 standby ticket and the last one to boot. Later on that day, he called a friend and told of this experience. That was the last time he spoke of Tiger Hood. That is, until this summery spring evening in the village. They walk up West Third and Jason asked Tiger Hood whether he could try his hand at street golf. You got to pay like you weigh, man. Hey, watch out. You don't see this man trying to swing? I can't afford no accidents. Look here, man. Don't swing till I tell you to. Like I was saying, you got to pay like you weigh. Earlier today, Usher had about 60 people out here. He was decent. Nothing spectacular. And last week, that one funny motherfucker who played in Central Intelligence was out here. Yeah, Kevin Hart. He had a herd of people watching his midget ass. Enough to get me a steak dinner that night. All right, man. Coast is clear. But yeah. I do this damn near seven days a week. Got to pay the bill somehow. Rent's too goddamn high. What you say your name was? That's right. You up next, Jason. Just bless the bucket first. You got to. Hey, miss, don't stand there. That's the fairway. You damn right. I'm watching. Just bend your knees, son. Jason walks to the bucket on the curb and donates to the cause. Terry standing on the sidewalk with his arms crossed over his chest. The other guy, now clearly annoyed, hands Jason the wedge. Here, 
Take this piece of shit. I keep losing the grip on it. You're all welcome for that piss poor performance. He takes a curious bow before walking off with his entourage down West Third. After picking up all 10 cartons, not a one on the fairway, Tiger Hood places them all in a nice linear sequence. Jason approaches the one at the front of the line, squares up and hits it. His first swing is average at best. Relax your shoulder some, young blood. You got this. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Hood Masters. His next three swings land near the fairway. Tiger Hood is only slightly impressed, yet he's happy to see a crowd gathering in the street. One lady starts video recording while others stare and stare. Some passers-by gape as Jason gets good distance on his next two swings, both landing on the fairway a few, few yards shy of the box. He then lines up to hit the seventh carton, shoulders relaxed. Hey, don't forget to bend your knees, young blood. Yeah, like that. And follow through on your release this time. He bends his knees and places the wedge low before the carton so that enough air can get under, the, can get under it. His seventh swing is accurate, follow through and all. The seventh carton travels through the air like none before it, landing on the fairway no more than a yard from the box, rolling to perfection. The crowd erupts with applause and cheers while four taxi drivers gridlocked at the in intersection of West Third and McDougal honk their horns at pedestrians in the street. Tiger Hood is all smiles, knowing that the number of people in the crowd is now triple what it was five minutes ago. Jason then turns and winks at Terry, who's still on the sidewalk, now clapping his hands in excitement. I see you out here swinging like Tiger Hood, Tiger Woods in 97. Does he get a red jacket for winning the Hood Masters? Tiger Hood starts laughing, excitement written all over his face. Observing upwards of 100 people in the crowd now, he encourages, he encourages them all to bless the bucket. Many of them do. Jason looks at the remaining three cartons, pleased with his latest effort, impressed by how high the seventh one flew, but unhappy that it didn't exactly land in the box. As soon as he approaches the eighth one, a random guy from across the street runs to Jason's side, nearly body slamming him in the process. Oh my goodness, dude. That was fucking awesome. How'd you do that? You play golf for real, don't you? Jason responds in a negative while raising one of his eyebrows at the awkwardness. Tiger Hood directs the random guy to step aside and urges Jason to carry on. Jason, still taken aback, lines up to hit the eighth carton, shoulders tense and knees straight. He's clearly too distracted to focus. Feeling somewhat drained from all the pomp and circumstance, Jason starts thinking that maybe close is good enough, that he should just call it quits right now. He also catches a snippet of Terry's conversation with Tiger Hood about the prospect of people sporting red jackets after winning the Hood Masters. Needing to hurry up, he takes a deep breath, tunes out all distractions and swings. Hey, don't sweat it, young blood. You got two more chances. Just relax your mind. Breathe easy. You got this. Nor does the ninth carton land on the fairway, not even close. And during the follow through, his release isn't up to par and he loses his balance, all but hitting a lady behind him with the wedge. After immediately apologizing to her, Jason takes another deep breath while tilting his head to the sky. All he can hear in his head is Tiger Hood's voice. You don't see this man trying to swing? I can't afford no accidents. But lucky for Jason, the lady's got a quick reflex. Despite being in a sudden panic after narrowly escaping her death, she quickly readjusts her top straightens her hair and walks into the sidewalk. She sticks around because she wants to witness his last swing. 
Jason exhales before calling for Tiger Wood, Tiger Hood, who's now on the other side, bucket in tow, taking donations for the cause. Remember what I said, young blood. Just relax and breathe easy. Don't be in a rush for nothing. You got to let the game come to you. I know you heard me tell that other cat can't afford no accidents. I ain't insured like that. But say, man, look here. You got a nice swing. No doubt about that. You got to learn to master your technique. And always watch your six out here. Street golf is fun. It's exciting. But it's also dangerous and risky, too. I swear I was just telling your partner how sometimes uh, how I sometimes play against him. Them Wall Street cats for some serious dough, like $20 a shot, and they like to gamble. So, you know, here, take my car. Come and see me sometime when there's less traffic and fewer distractions. I'll show you a thing or two. No, thank you, young blood. I'm already looking forward to my steak dinner tonight. Don't forget, you got one more chance. After placing the card in his pocket, Jason offers his last chance to the lady he almost took out with the wedge on accident. She hesitates at first, then accepts once he explains the proper ways to hold and swing the wedge. Many people in the crowd taking notice of this start dispersing little by little. Before lining up to hit the last carton, she smiles while looking back at Jason who's standing on the sidewalk with his arms crossed over his chest. She thinks he's watching, but he isn't. He's lost in a daydream about street golf and how difficult yet fun it is and how someone could create an entertaining hustle using throwaways and how uniquely remarkable Tiger Hood was when he saw it three years ago and how the documentary pales in comparison to the real Tiger Hood even so. She finally swings, giving it her best shot, but the carton doesn't travel far from the tee. Shrugging her shoulders, she returns the wedge to Tiger Hood drops a dollar in the bucket and thanks Jason for the entertainment and the opportunity. They chat for about five minutes and exchange names and numbers before she scurries up McDougal. Jason and Terry dap up and decide to mosey on down to Village Underground to have more drinks. All the while, Jason is daydreaming, daydreaming again, this time about how much he appreciates Tiger Hood for bringing street golf to New York City so that people like himself and his new acquaintance, Jasmine, can experience the challenge of playing it. Once inside, they order another pitcher of beer and grab another table. Before sitting down, Terry runs back to the bar and returns with two more vodka shots for another sweet take, taste of victory. Mind if I do the honors this time? Good looking out. Yo, what we witnessed tonight captured everything this city's about, from the crowd to the energy, from the pressure to the excitement, from the randomness to the awkwardness. It was everything and more. At first, I couldn't believe there was a dude actually playing street golf in New York City. Then I saw that documentary and it blew my mind. But tonight, bro, was on a whole other level. And I'm glad you were there to witness it because I can't remember the last time people cheered for me like that. Word. I didn't get that joint in, but I legit had the whole crowd rocking. And I got old girl's math, which was totally unexpected. But I knew something was up when she didn't leave. Yo, check it. Tiger Hood's got something special. I can't deny that. But you're right. The winner of the hood, the, the winner of the hood master should definitely get a red red jacket. That'd be dope as fuck. So with all that being said, let's bless up to Miss Sonia Sanchez, them Wildcats, New York City, and last but not least, the legendary Tiger Hood. Salute. conversation um 
But yeah, so I, all we were going to talk about is just kind of comedy. So I know typically... Oh, I thought you were asking me questions about the uh, story. Yeah, well, about the story, about co- writing comedy Oh, we're general. just having a conversation, so all three conversation. of them. Yeah, 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 okay. yeah, yeah. So what, um, what's kind of your thoughts on, on comedy? Is it something that you usually try to write, or did this just happen to be one story... From your uh, time in New York that ended up being a comedy? What's, uh... Yeah, I mean, I personally really enjoy comedies because, I mean, in the strict sense, by definition, a comedy is just that which has a happy ending, right? And we've got many a story to tell, uh, whether, you know, fictitious or, or factual. Like, I think it's just awesome to be able to tell stories and I had that experience in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I wrote it more um, in short story form just because yeah. I wanted to sort of engage the reader in that way and not really write anything that was sort of autobiographical. But mm-hmm. that was a real experience. Um, and I thought it was an amazing experience. It was so random, right? Yeah. Uh, but it was so amusing to me, like just the way the whole yeah. like, night went. And so I think we have those experiences and people would enjoy learning about them. Right. Yeah. So that I think we're all interested in comedy on some level. Um, I just think that uh, some of us uh, enjoy writing about it and telling stories in that way. Yeah. But having stories with happy endings, I think, are mm-hmm. very important. It's certainly like uh, seems like medicine for, you know, hard times. To, to know that at the end of the story, you're going to have some kind of, you know, satisfying ending or yeah. a happy ending, you know, is there's comfort in that. Um, but even with like, and I, I've noticed with a lot of like current TV shows or movies, even that are, that are comedies, they, they're not necessarily comedies by classical definition. You know, they don't necessarily have you know, happy endings, right. like tragic, tragic comedy is a big right. thing. For right. Tragic now. comedy oh, yeah. is a different thing. Yeah. Right. yeah but yeah. even that is like medicine, right? Yeah. Like being able to laugh through like the terrible things like happening yeah. <laughs> to right. the characters. No laugh at your pain, so, right? Most, most yeah. of the comedians that we, that we, that yeah. we love and respect are laughing at themselves and their right. pain or ignorance or where they've come from, you know, Word. you know, we're laughing at ourselves. Yeah. yeah. I think it's good that you mentioned the tragic comedy, right? Because when we think about a tragedy, again, by definition, that's something that has a, a, an unhappy ending, right? right? It's something tragic that, that takes place. So then what happens with this, uh, this merging of the two, right? Mm-hmm. You've got the tragic right. comedy. Um, and so that's an interesting sort of philosophical exploration uh, into the existential, right? Like I just, I love that idea of a tragic comedy. I think those are much harder to write. Sure. Um, bl- blending the two is quite, is quite the marriage. Uh, how does it end in that case, right? right? How does it begin? What are we really getting at? I think there is a question about uh, the, the human condition, right? There's that exploration. That's why I really like Dostoevsky. Mm-hmm. I think Dostoevsky did a really good job with writing about the tragic comedy, right. you know. That's, um, yeah. yeah. That's, that is interesting because I feel you know, if, if you're right in the middle of writing something and you don't already have the end imagined, then it becomes like a question of, uh, or there's the temptation to feel like you have to end it as a tragedy or else it's not true to the piece, or you have to end it as a happy ending or else it's not true to the piece as a comedy or something Mm -hmm. like that. I love that. Tied up on definitions, but or structure or structure. structure, structure, Yeah. But, but, but one tragedy, 
uh, or, or a tragedy to one person, it may not be to another, right? Absolutely. You take Ralph Ellison's uh, Invisible Man, yeah. where the end is in the beginning, right? right. He's, yeah. He's talking to you from his, uh, yeah. his humble abode beneath the city, right? Yeah. He's stealing electricity from the, the, the local, yeah. uh, you know, energy company, <laughs> right? right? Uh, and somebody would say that's, that's a tragedy, whereas he's as free as he's ever been, right? Mm-hmm. And so in the prologue, he's introducing you to how he got to where he is, right. which on the one hand might seem to be tragic. Right. Like, wow, man, you're living underground. But on the other hand, it's clearly like this liberation. He's he's so happy, but he's still upset about the fact that, like, he's been seen as invisible to certain people. And he wants to tell about how he's arrived at this point, but you've yeah. got to go on the journey with him. Right, right. So there's tragedy within it. There's comedy within it. Right. It's just like, wow. It's the, yeah, it's the, it's the context of yeah. the total piece. Right. Yeah. I mean, pathways, right. Of, of exploring irony, right. The irony. Mm-hmm. I love that's that. Where, that's where, that's me, the Danish for you, man. That's like where that. the comedy lies for me. Right. And, and, and I mean, Fact, fiction, or excuse me, fact is always more bizarre than fiction, right? Mm-hmm. So, but then, then the the as as writers, as artists, as creatives, we're experiencing like sort of this thing happened, but all of these things are connected to how we see and experience whatever yes. this thing is, yeah. right? I yeah. love this, and that's where I think that. It's like, hmm, right? And we all just twisted enough and cynical enough, but also open enough to look at it like, you know, like, and that's where the comedy is for me, right? Right. Mm. You know, is in when, when, um, you know, one of my favorite Chappelle stand-ups is the, I think it's the second or the third one, where he starts with the, uh, buying weed from a baby, right? Yeah. You know that one right yeah. on the corner, yeah, the yeah, baby, yeah. right? And that whole that whole that whole interwoven moment ends. The whole setup ends with him being at the club, yeah, and the baby coming up, <laughs> right? The woman dancing. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That's how that whole journey ends. Yeah. Why are you brilliant, right? Yeah. yeah. But how weaving these uh, these truths and the ways in which we just see shit, right? Right. Um, and being open to seeing it. In ways in which we also sort of incriminate ourselves, right? Like right. It's a, there's a there's a kind of well, I, I take comfort in the fact that it seems to be like an, a a choice of authority to to choose to make a joke about it or laugh about it. You know, I think most uh, you know, comedy minded people or comedian centered people get the bad rap of oh they're making a joke about it because they can't handle the reality of it or they're deflecting, right? right? Which sometimes might be the case, mm-hmm. but I feel like when you're when you're when you're actually not just making a joke in real life scenario, but you choose to take whatever has happened to you or whatever you witness in society, and you choose to make it humorous, right. then it's a it's a conscious decision of like ownership. Right. And I feel like there's a lot of like power in that. Like you've kind of usurped the depression of the situation by right. saying, "No, I'm gonna laugh at this because in all reality, this aspect or this aspect is is humorous." Yeah. I mean, it. is. We could say that uh, that's what made Richard Pryor so great at the stand Right, that's right. right. That's right. 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 Uh, and I like that yeah. you brought in irony. Uh, I, I think it takes a particular skill set to be able to write irony, to be sarcastic, right. and to have that witty banner. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people dislike Woody Allen, 
but I think his writing is superb, right? Sure. He's he's always got these neurotic characters. He, he plays these characters himself, right? right? right. But like he himself was, right? Yeah. But he sort of gets at this this notion of uh of irony. He's really sarcastic. Yeah. And so I think for a lot of people, like you, you have to be able to get it in order to really enjoy the laugh. Right. You know? Because right. right. there are a lot of times when something is actually uh mentioned sarcastically where it's just like Oh, I don't get it. It's not yeah. funny, but it's really, really funny. Right. So I, I think it really requires a lot of skill on the part of the writer to like be successful in yeah. right. writing irony. But it, it puts a lot of uh, impetus on the reader too, right? right. Because right. like you were saying about being sarcastic, like you can write the most beautifully constructed uh, plot and have, like you said, sophisticated, witty banter and a sar- sarcastic character. But if the reader or the viewer doesn't have that sense of humor, yeah, or reads it literally, or right. reads it literally, <laughs> yeah. or there's just some people that get you know hurt feelings by that's you right. know, be that's feeling right. picked like on. you miss the whole point, yeah, right, right, yeah. yeah. or be right. like they're being mean. It's like well, they're right. being sarcastic, right? Yeah. You know, and I think that Richard Pryor experienced a certain type of comedy. I think when he was doing it, it was like right on time to introduce like that level of comedy. I think he's influenced so many comedians, right? Because they, the, the public was ready for Richard Pryor, even mm-hmm. though I don't think they realized they were. Right. They needed that, right? So when he started incorporating like politics in his jokes, right. he was making light of it, but like it was hysterical. It's like, whoa, like we can take a load off, but still be serious sure. about, you know, overcoming still racism. Still created a dialogue. About yeah, it. and it, that's what it did awareness. in turn, right? Yeah. right. Yeah. So so then you wouldn't have a Martin Lawrence without a Richard right. Pryor. Right. You wouldn't have a Chris Rock without yeah. a Richard Pryor. Sure. You certainly wouldn't have a Kevin Hart without the three of them, right? Yeah. But now we've we've allowed for comedians to be the ones to bring this this sarcasm and irony sure. to us. To talk about serious matters, right? Well, I think in the age of the, like the Daily Show and things like that, that we, yes. that we, that we, yeah, like you said, we look to them now. Like we put yeah. it on them. Yeah. It's it's funny how there was like a combativeness about it at first with these mm-hmm. you know forefathers of political comedy and stuff. Even mm-hmm. Carlin catching flack too, correct? Yeah, correct. like that. Right. But now we we expect it, or it's it's America's you know favorite form of yeah. getting the news is inside when it's wrapped inside yeah. a joke. This makes me think about what is the what is uh, the the writer's place in the twenty first century in talking about comedy tragedy, the tragic comic, right? Mm-hmm. Like. It's interesting to me. How how does the writer succeed in conveying whatever message uh, across many different people right. um, by by using comedy? Yeah, I wonder about that. It's uh, a and because today, you know, with 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 the proliferation of like social media and things happening so quickly, like is it best to give people just like tidbits here and there? Like, how many people are yeah. really sitting down reading? Uh, Ulysses today, right? right. right. Um, how many people are doing that? But right. you know, people are on that news feed just scrolling. Down. Yeah, right. they're spending the time in actuality. Correct. Right. So are, are are now comedians better off just like writing comedy and aphorisms, right? Just giving people yeah. snapshots of this, but still conveying the message. I wonder about that. I think about that. Because because if you look at a comedian's stand up, like that happens a lot of snapshots of things. Yeah. They're running through a gambit of different topics. Yeah. I think something yeah. is happening there, and maybe the writer needs to pay attention to what these stand up comedians are doing. I wonder about that. Well, I think it's 
I think that it comes to uh, an observation I've made when talking to people who've written humor before is there seems to be one of two camps. Either you've written humor because um, you normally write in some other genre or form and there just happens to be one experience or one thing that you found humorous that ended up being funny. And so mm. then you've written a comedy piece like you've stumbled upon it, yeah. you know. Or there's the other type that, you know, seeks to be a comedy writer and is doing more what you're getting at where it's a conscious choice and they're taking things, whether it's personal life or everyday observations or, you know, political things, cultural things and yeah. saying, how can I make this yeah. a joke mm -hmm. coming from it, you know, from the other way. Yeah. But, yeah. I find it interesting that uh, for the most part, as I understand it, comedians are themselves writers but not sure. all writers are themselves comedians. Yeah, right? absolutely. And so that's why I think aspiring to be a stand-up comedian yeah. is a great thing, right? Yeah. Because you're both a writer yeah. and a speaker. Right, right. You're delivering right. this. And I think there's something about that. For sure. You know? Performance. and It's, it's great. Yeah. 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 Dave Chappelle maybe being, uh, you know, the, the creme de la creme, the prototype. Right. I mean, his, his work is brilliant. Well, and, there, and there's there's, uh, com there's comedy writers who aren't necessarily comedians, right? But are great at That's writing right. humor or jokes. Yeah, you know, yeah. and they'll go do the stand up thing for a little yeah. bit because that's and the insert Donald name. Glover right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because he's actually but done this. Yeah. And he wrote for Thirty yeah. Rock. He that's actually true. did stand up comedy. Yeah, mm -hmm. he started with Community. Yeah. yeah, in Atlanta now he's he's doing this. this yeah. That's the tragedy comedy. Right. Yeah, it is. yeah, totally, totally. It's yeah. a it's like. He who can wear the most hats is kind of being a polymath has the most. Yeah, that's a renaissance man. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Woman, right? Has the most options. It seems to be. If you yeah. can do it all, you have more right. options. Yeah, and to synthesize across all of those things. That's yeah. right. It's real. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, what about you? What what brought you to comedy? Um, I, I just always, I've always liked the genre. I like the, I like the feeling of of being able to. Uh, make people laugh like we were talking about it's uh, you know a coping mechanism mm -hmm. um, with you know heavier things that gets a bad rap but I feel like that's a it's at least like I said taking ownership and making a conscious choice of your circumstances um, and trying to do something positive about it versus you know wallowing in depression or something like that mm -hmm. I remember when I when I when I was in a this is gonna date me now when I was in eighth grade when 9-11 happened one of the things that I did is this was one of the first years I was t I took drama too as a theater nerd. And uh, one of the first things I did is, you know, of course, after 9-11, everyone was really, really, you know, scared and, and super sad about everything that had happened. And I had just got this uh, Jerry Seinfeld's book, Sign Language, and I memorized like, you know, a three or four page monologue of just his stand up from that book. And then I went to my drama teacher and asked her if I could like do it that day. And I did it in front of the class. And just that moment of like being, seeing people's moods change was just really, it seemed like a valuable and like tangible thing to mm. do. It seemed like something you could do instead of just like stand by, like we can nice. take this, whether right. it's my circumstances or bettering your mood. Nice. So it's just, I think it's just chasing that uh, feeling of usefulness whether it's in conversation and making people laugh or it's an yeah. intentional written piece that, yeah. that I, that I've fell in love with. Yeah, man, that, uh, music and the ability to make one another laugh have been yeah. essentials to all of my friendships that are lasting. Yeah. I'd like to yeah, echo that. That's interesting. You brought in music. I love music, but I'm, I'm thinking about 
comedy and poetry and how we don't often see a lot of comedy and poetry. But I think poetry heals. And if comedy does, too, yeah. there should be a fusion of the two. So e England has a huge poetry comedy scene. Really? Yeah. You okay. Tim Key and... Uh, Tim Key is like a big one, but there's a, there's a few other ones that are really, really funny. Mm -hmm. And they're, um, they're all over like the TV too, over there. Like the, like they're the top dogs in the entertainment industry. Wow. Like comedians and, and, and poetry comedians. Um, they're like all on the panel shows and stuff like that. Wow. And they're, you see one person and it's like, they have a book, they're on this show, they're producing their own, you know, they're doing all these things. Yeah. They have a really um, you know, established scene for it, but we don't have that typically here. You know, we have, I think maybe Bo Burnham has a book of poetry. He's also a stand up. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a couple others. That's yeah, interesting. But it's not as big. I think there's something there. They have a better sense of humor, maybe. Well, the, <laughs> the, the English have always. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. It is. That's worth, that's worthy of exploration. Yeah. Actually. Um, Q, did you find something you would I did. like to read? Okay, After we're going to wrap up this conversation and then get to uh, part two of a reading. Brown Sugar. Saturday afternoon, wandering north on Ashland in a rented Hyundai. Lilac with no acceleration and no tape player. Because of the former, I was running late for the poetry reading of two close friends. Because of the latter, I was heavily occupied with frequency exploration. After a few commercials, a plea for my salvation and a little hootie, which can be too much hootie, depending on one's state of being, the radio selector landed on the final yelps of Led Zeppelin's Jamaica. I lingered for a moment, troubled that the first three minutes eluded me. I remembered something that came to me in 1985 during my tenure at the University of Oklahoma. In a hazy mind state, I announced to my homeboys, black folks created rock and roll. The only thing white folks contributed that even made a difference was smack. It's true, but damn was I self-righteous, I'm thinking, when the chords to brown sugar kick in. Such a timeless piece of art from those rolling stones. My head began to bob without thought like the groove had been buried there. Russ, my closest Oklahomie, discovered the Hot Rocks album our senior year of high school. On any Friday night in 1982, you might spot him atop a pump jack. A beer in one hand, pump jack in the other, pouting his lips while yelping, I can't get no satisfaction. Though <laughs> I was the girly, actionless one. I'm no schoolboy, but I know what I like. You should have heard I'm just around midnight. It's summer following my first year at OU, and I'm back at my parents' house. Camp counselor by day, restless by night. One evening, the phone rang and my father answered. It's for you, he grunted, aiming the receiver my way. Hello? Hello? A 
and it's mixed voice. Brown sugar, how come you do it so good? Yeah, brown sugar, just like a young girl. Hello. But it's only Mick. Only the chorus to brown sugar for three months, often four times a week. That was the last summer I lived with my parents. My head's bobbing on automatic like this car's transmission, still cruising north on Ashland, keeping time with Keith Richards' licks. A college friend once told me Keith invented heroin. I believed him. I still do. Damn, I could have made that light as the red pickup meanders across Lake Street. I check my watch. Damn, it's a quarter to two. I look to my right, and there's Garrett Morris at the bus stop. I pull over, roll down the passenger window, and ask him if he wants a ride. He grins, glassy eyes sagging, and joins me. He says he's out looking for the women Mick ponders in the song. I tell him that skit has always been a favorite of mine, and we converse about the current sorry-ass state of Saturday Night Live. He jets at Chicago Avenue, promising to phone me when he finds these women. Mick's preparing to wrap it up. I know what's coming. At that very moment, a revelation. Just who is he talking about? Is he talking about my great-grandmother who wore slavery in the wrinkle of her back, yet still held Jim Crow at gunpoint for 99 years? Or my grandmother who cleaned up behind drunken country and western singers and their one-night lovers at the roadside motel? Is he talking about my niece, Whitney, who at 11 is the same age as Pocahontas when she met John Smith? Whitney, who has never brought home anything lower than an A on any report card in her life. Is he talking about my mama, my sisters, my aunties, my cousins, my wife? Don't go there, Mick. Just like a just like a black girl should. Yeah, my head. Stop bobbing. I press the scan button with a great sense of urgency. Tony Braxton in mid ooze. The very thought of you makes me want to get undressed. Ah! Prayed for my car's speedy recovery and turned off the radio. I was late to the reading. All right. Good times. Great pieces. Both of those pieces make me chuckle, make me laugh. And what a, what a great conversation. Really, really enjoyed talking with those guys about comedy and, and culture and everything. Uh, like I said, join us next week for the final episode of this season of The Odd Coyote. We're going to be featuring Casey Hooper and Jessa Murray, two former students of mine and awesome writers and ready to have that last episode. Thanks again for listening. Please tune in to the other episodes and next week's episode. And keep an eye out on the Twitter page and Facebook for the Hexagon presentation of the six shorts um, from Black Wall Street Theater Company.